Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Welcome to a history of Europe, key battles, the Battle of Lepanto of 1571, part two of five. In part one last week I described a Turkish victory over a combined Spanish-Phoenician fleet at the naval Battle of Prevetsa of 1538. The defeat for the Christians did not deter Emperor Charles V. He was still determined to counter the Ottoman threat, seeing it as his religious duty as the most powerful leader in Christendom to fend off the threats of the infidels. For a period until the year 1541, Charles was preoccupied with matters close to the home, tied up in months of negotiations with German princes at the Diet of Regensburg to try and produce a compromise between Catholics and Protestants. The well-meaning interfaith document was ultimately to be rejected by both sides. At the same time, the Ottomans continued to be a threat in Hungary. Their run of victories on the battlefields of Syria, Anatolia, Hungary, Egypt, Iraq and Persia painted a picture of Ottoman invincibility, which was based on several factors. Their disciplined artillery and infantry, and also their very strong cavalry forces. In July 1541, Charles' intense efforts at diplomacy finally gave fruit when Protestant commanders were persuaded to help protect Central Europe, while Charles was able to join a new naval campaign against the Ottomans, this one directed at the city of Algiers, the most powerful of all the Turkish Corsair bases in North Africa. It was getting late in the season when Charles was able to meet up with a fleet assembled in the Bay of Palma at Mallorca with more than 500 ships and 24,000 soldiers. After enduring difficult weather, the fleet only arrived in front of Algiers on the 19th of October. Charles established his headquarters on the land promontory, accompanied by German, Spanish and Italian troops, as well as 150 knights of Malta. Soon the Allies had managed to surround the city, except for the northern part. The citizens were terrified, but the city's governor held firm and treated Charles's demand that he should surrender with contempt. At the time it seemed like a courageous yet futile act of defiance for Charles's forces were in a seemingly unassailable position. On the night before the planned assault on the city, the weather unexpectedly changed. 
a great storm suddenly appeared and the heavens opened. The troops were soaked and it was impossible to keep their gunpowder dry. Early next morning, amid shrieking winds and rainstorms, the city's defenders launched a surprise sortie and pushed the enemy back to the coast. The Allies, in particular the Knights of Malta, fought back bravely in spite of the appalling conditions, and at one point their counter-attack brought them all the way to the city walls. However, the storm prevented the fleet from assisting with a naval bombardment, so that the fighting reverted to a gruelling contest of sword and pike fought hand-to-hand. After two days of inconclusive fighting, the weather at last seemed to begin to clear. But then another storm arrived from the northeast, even more ferocious than the one before. Many of the Allied ships were destroyed, and Charles realised he had no choice but to call off the siege. Had it not been for the sudden storms, the siege would almost certainly have succeeded. Although the Emperor could in no way be blamed for the weather, inevitably his prestige was badly damaged, while the reputation of the Turks for invincibility was strengthened once again. Sultan Suleiman must have been jubilant about Charles's defeat at Algiers, and so was Francis I of France. The two leaders decided at this point to build on their Franco-Ottoman alliance, despite the outrage this provoked among the other Christians, in particular the Pope. In the year 1543, the former Corsair pirate, now Ottoman commander Barbarossa, was sent into the western Mediterranean. His fleet of eight galleys raided the Italian coast as it worked its way up towards France. All along the coastline of Italy, people flew into a state of panic. In Rome, the streets even had to be patrolled by armed men at night to prevent a mass exodus from the city. But in fact, the Turks were not equipped for an invasion, and the fleet sailed on past to southern France and the port of Marseille, where Barbarossa was received with honour by the French. However, almost from the outset the Turks and French began to quarrel, while the vast majority of ordinary French folk made no attempt to hide their horror at this collusion with the infidels. Part of the problem was that the French, for all their promises, had made virtually no serious preparations for the expedition at all. Their ships were unprepared for war, and had not even been provisioned. Barbarossa lost his temper, became scarlet with rage, and tore his beard, furious to have made such a long journey with such a large fleet, and to be unable to take action. Francis did his best to pacify him, ordering the immediate provisioning of several of the Turkish ships, as well as his own. Barbarossa had hoped for a direct attack on the Emperor in Spain, but for Francis this was impossible. For such an act he would never be forgiven by Christendom. He proposed and said an attack on the port city of Nice, which was not part of France at the time, but instead belonged to the Duke of Savoy, who was both a vassal and an ally of Charles. Barbarossa reluctantly accepted, and the Franco-Ottoman siege of Nice began in August. At first the local population resisted bravely, but after just over two weeks the governor of the city felt compelled to formally surrender. In so doing, he was entitled, and doubtlessly expected, his city to be spared too much violence. Instead, within two days, Nice was mercilessly sacked and put to the torch. 
although later French propaganda laid the blame for this outrage upon the shoulders of the Turks, the evidence goes to show that it was the French themselves who had run amok in the captured city and burned it to the ground. After the Battle of Nice, the Turks stayed in the French port of Toulon, most of whose citizens were forcibly evicted to make room for Barbarossa's men. A large house was converted into a mosque, and the harbour was filled with Turkish galleys manned by Christian slaves. To make matters worse, an epidemic broke out in 1544, whereupon the Turks sent raiding parties out into the surrounding villages with orders to find replacements for the dead galley slaves. This finally went too far, and Francis was forced to pay Barbarossa to leave. The outrage was so great throughout Christendom that the French were quickly losing all their allies. King Henry VIII of England signed a treaty with Emperor Charles and even promised to invade northern France and to march on Paris. And the German princes who often quarrelled with Charles could no longer bear making common cause with France. Even the Protestant leaders, Luther and Calvin, spoke out in support of the Catholic Emperor. Charles and Henry VIII organised a joint campaign against France, forcing Francis to make a treaty and to backtrack on his support of the Ottomans. The resulting treaty of 1544 actually lasted for a good while and marked the beginning of a relative lull in a series of conflicts around Europe and the Mediterranean, as several of the main actors of the generation passed away around this time. Martin Luther and Barbarossa died in February and July of 1546. Henry VIII of England and Francis I of France in February and March of 1547. The same year, a five-year truce was signed between Archduke Ferdinand and the Ottomans. In the meantime, there had been a series of intrigues in Constantinople. As was frequently the case for the Ottomans, much of this was centred around the Sultan's harem. Suleiman was a less frequent visitor to the harem than his father, Selim I, had been. Early in his reign, he nearly always chose to sleep with a certain concubine by the name of Mahid Devran, but there were exceptions. One other concubine in particular caught his attention. She was a Russian by birth a Christian and a daughter of an Orthodox priest who had been captured during a Turkish raid into Galicia in southern Poland. On arrival in Constantinople, she was brought before the harem and named Kurem, the Turkish for the laughing one, because apparently her smile was so radiant that everyone was enchanted by it. Among the small Western European community in Constantinople, she was dubbed La Rusalan because of her Russian birth, which became corrupted to Roxolana, the name by which she is known to history in the West. In 1533, Suleiman's mother passed away, which inevitably triggered a power struggle between Mahid Devran and Roxolana, and less than a year later it became clear who had won when Mahid Devran was banished from the capital. Having assured her ascendancy in the harem by arranging marriages for any potential rivals among the concubines, Roxlana turned her attention to Suleiman's grand vizier, Ibrahim Pasha, her last remaining political rival. Ibrahim Pasha had been a close friend of Suleiman from before his ascension. 
He was originally a Christian from the region of Albania, who was captured in a raid during the 1499-1503 Ottoman-Venetian War. Over the years, he quickly rose to the ranks and became trusted by Suleiman due to his good judgment and diplomatic skills. From 1533, Suleiman trusted Ibrahim so much he felt confident in leaving him the whole business of government. When war broke out with Persia in 1535, the Sultan instructed Ibrahim to take command of his army while remaining at home. He became almost like a brother to the Sultan, and this very closeness made him enemies, in particular Roxlana. It took her years to destroy her husband's trust in his childhood companion. That he was a talented and energetic man must have made it all the harder. It seems likely that Roxlana was able to dig up some evidence that Ibrahim was secretly receiving money from Venice. She and her allies also spread rumours of how he boasted his power over the Sultan. In the spring of 1536, after returning from a successful campaign in Persia, Ibrahim was summoned to dine with the Sultan, as he had done on hundreds of occasions in the past. Very early the next morning, however, his lifeless body was found outside the gate of the palace, with marks on his neck, leaving no doubt that he had been strangled. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me, because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates, like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. There followed a succession of weak grand viziers, none of whom came close to Ibrahim and their political skills, and as a consequence, the Ottoman state was badly weakened. For Roxlana, there still remained one dangerous rival, Suleiman's eldest son, Mustafa, who had been born to his previous favourite concubine, Mahid Devran. By the 1550s, Mustafa was in the prime of his life, highly cultured, of immense charm and a fearless soldier. The problem for Roxana was that if he were to assume the throne, his first action would almost certainly be, in the Ottoman tradition, to have all his half-brothers killed, and that meant her sons. Roxana worked with the current Grand Vizier to feed Suleiman lies about Mustafa, that he was in secret contact with the Persians and scheming to overthrow his father. On the 21st of September, 1553, Suleiman ordered Mustafa to appear before him, warning him that he must come prepared to clear himself of the various accusations. When Mustafa entered his father's tent, he was immediately set upon, and though he bravely fought against his attackers, he was strangled to death. Mustafa had been loved by his people, and the soldiers in particular, and showed every sign of becoming a worthy successor to his father. But it was not to be. When Roxlana suddenly died in 1558, Suleiman was distraught. 
Retreating from the world, he dedicated himself to prayer and fasted in an attempt to find solace for his grief. Many of his subjects, however, were relieved and even delighted at her death, for they believed for too long she had held an evil influence over their sultan. The next year, Oxlana's two sons fought in open civil war. The younger son, Bayezid, generally considered the more capable, was defeated by his elder brother, Selim, who therefore became heir to the Ottoman throne. The deaths of Mustafa and Bayezid are often seen as the beginning of the decline of the Ottoman Empire, for Selim and his successors would show themselves less capable than Suleiman and his predecessors, and political intrigue and murder would continue to plague the Ottoman court. In the 1550s, pirates continued to plague the coastlines of the Mediterranean, often working together with Ottoman forces. The most feared of all Barbary pirates after the passing of Barbarossa was one by the name of Dragoo. In 1550, his men, based on the island of Djerba, just off southern Tunisia, seized control of the port of Mardia to the north, which he used as a second harbour for his fleet. And in 1551, the port of Tripoli, held for Emperor Charles V by the Knights of St John, was captured in a joint operation by a band of pirates and an Ottoman imperial fleet. From then on, the city once again became a base of operation for piracy. Each of the next few years, Dragu worked in cooperation with the Ottomans, raiding Christian coastal towns and villages, especially in Corsica and Italy but those were relatively small, scare attacks, with not enough troops made available for territorial gains. In the meantime, Charles V, now in his fifties, was planning his abdication. He felt overburdened by the responsibilities of running his immense empire, mentally and physically exhausted, and suffered from severe gout. He was anxious to leave just as soon as he was confident enough that his son, Philip, would be able to take over the reins in Flanders and Spain. In 1555, when Philip arrived in the Netherlands, he was immediately summoned to his father, and the two spent several days entirely alone together. Charles appeared satisfied, Philip was ready, and passed on to him the sovereignty of the Low Countries, and then, in January 1556, the Crown of Spain and its dependencies, which included the newly discovered territories in America. Since Germany and Austria were already safely in the hands of his brother, Ferdinand, there was now nothing left to him but his title as Emperor. Charles's abdication ceremony was held on the 25th of October 1556 in Brussels in the Great Hall of the Palace, packed with knights, nobility and ministers. At precisely three o'clock in the afternoon, the gout-crippled emperor made his entrance, leaning heavily on the shoulder of the young William of Orange, a local ruler in the Netherlands. Charles made a moving speech to the assembly. He spoke of his attempts through forty years of war and diplomacy to bring peace to his people, to defend the church and to protect the patrimony of his family. He appealed to his brother Ferdinand and to his son Philip to avoid the errors he had made, those he said of youth, self-will and indolence, and urged them to stand fast in the faith of his fathers, to care for peace and justice. 
for he declared with pride they had never wilfully wronged any man, and if he had, he now asked their forgiveness. When he finished, he sank, almost fainting in his chair, with tears in his eyes, with regret that he had not achieved more. It was true that in his attempts to maintain the unity of Christianity and to turn back the Ottoman tide, he had failed, but he was probably too harsh on himself. Few, if any, leaders in history would have been able to have coped with the scale and number of the challenge that Charles faced in his lifetime. The Reformation, the powerful Ottoman Empire, and the aggression of France, to say the least. Although not the most naturally gifted of all men, throughout his long reign he always worked hard for what he believed in, and consistently showed personal courage and also consideration for other men. Among his achievements, he had succeeded in defending his kingdom's frontiers, had come to dominate the Italian peninsula, and he now ruled over an overseas empire of unprecedented size. The following summer, Charles set off to retirement in Spain. In city after city of his native duchy of Burgundy, the people set lights in their windows and rung out the church bells to bid him farewell. He lived out the last two years of his life in a monastery in the village of Eusta, in the Spanish region of Extremadura. There he was surrounded by his most favoured possessions, rich Burgundian furniture and tapestries, great paintings, clocks, globes, charts and a small library, and lived out the last days of his life in peace, having lived a life as full as anyone in history.' 